0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, guys. Uh, Yeah, Golden Goose Awards is like my favorite event of the year here in the life of our church. So, uh, sorry for stepping in front of you guys. But good job. And I would encourage you as well to come out next Sunday night right here in the sanctuary. It's going to be a lot of fun. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3, please. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And we're on page 2. Genesis 3, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 19. Uh, Many of you are probably feeling like The year 2020 is the year that would never end. It just seems like a really hard year, doesn't it? We've had, of course, uh, a pandemic, COVID pandemic, continuing to wreak havoc on our nation. We've seen our cities in the United States plagued by riots and protests. We've seen uh, what seems like an unprecedented amount of political division. We've even had a severe hurricane season, even this year. And some are saying there's been so many hurricanes, we're running out of names for them here in 2020. And now we've just witnessed a, a bitterly contested presidential election. On and on it goes. 2020 has been a hard year. and Some of you might be thinking, it feels like this year is cursed. And if you have thought that, your instincts actually would be pretty close to correct. Um, the year 2020 has been cursed, actually, and the reason is because the world has been cursed. Do, do you know that? That we live in a cursed world. Now, sometimes when you think of this word curse, you might think of it in kind of a silly way. You, know, you might think of a, a witch casting a spell on somebody in some kind of movie or story. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the curse of the billy goat if you're a Chicago Cubs fan. This idea that the Cubs were cursed with no World Series appearances for 71 years. Finally lifted in 2016 with their World Series victory. Uh, We think of curses maybe in this kind of way, just an imaginary kind of mythical thing. But the scripture says that the curse is something very real that there is something called a curse, and you and I in this world are living under it. And this is why, I think the scriptures would say, um, life is hard. It's why marriage is hard. It's why raising children is hard. It's why it's hard to find a good job, and it's hard to keep a job, and it's hard to enjoy a job. And so some people have adopted this motto that you have heard, and I'm going to give you the G-rated version of it, but the motto is, life is hard, then you die. For a lot of people, that pretty much sums up their worldview, that's the way they look at things, life is hard, then you die. Well, here we are in this sermon series on the book of Genesis, the gospel according to Genesis. And what we've seen here over these last couple of chapters, we saw God create the universe, call it very good. We've seen God create Adam and Eve as the very first human beings. He placed them in a garden that he called paradise. He told them not to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree, but they did so anyway. And last week we saw the results of that that it brought shame upon Adam and Eve, that they refused to take the blame, and that as a result of that sin, Sin has entered into the bloodstream of the human race. Well, last week, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, we saw God asking a lot of questions to Adam and Eve. Where are you, and what have you done, etc.? But here in this passage, verses 14 to 19, we see God not asking questions, but making some very strong statements. Statements to the serpent about deceiving the woman, statements to the woman about believing the serpent. And statements to the man about believing the woman. And that's what we're going to look at here today to see what there is to be learned about this curse that we live underneath. So let me read Galatians, excuse me, Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. If you can stand, please do so, and I'll read that passage to you now. Genesis three fourteen to 19. <clears throat> we're still in the Garden of Eden here. That's the setting, that's the place. And we read here, verse 14, "'The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock "'and above all beasts of the field. "'On your belly you shall go, "'and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and her offspring.' He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed, is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Holy Spirit, would you please come and give us wisdom and understanding, open our eyes to behold the truth that is here for us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so this is one of the these messages where the, the three points divide up very easily for the preacher. So we're going to look at these three things, God's words to the woman and to the man and to the serpent. And so we're going to begin by seeing what God says to the woman here in verse 16. Now I'm telling you here about this curse that we live under. one clarification I want to make very uh, very clearly is that the curse is not a curse that's been placed on human beings. You'll notice here that God doesn't curse Adam and he doesn't curse the woman either. The curse is said to be on the serpent, verse 14, you'll see, and on the ground in verse 17. And so we'll explain that in a little more detail uh, a little later. so, uh, it's important to note to here that God is not cursing his image bearers, but he is bringing a curse upon the world in which we live. And so that ends up having implications then for the life that we live in this world. And in particular, God is telling the woman the trouble that she is going to endure now under this new normal living in a fallen world. And so there's two areas of uh, in which the the woman is going to be experiencing trouble and, and one of them here is in childbearing so you'll see that in verse 16 to the woman he said I shall surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children now r- remember this is in context, in the context of what we saw in chapter 1 verse 28 the creation mandate that I've been kind of reminding you about this is God's job description for the human race and he tells us to take dominion of all creation but he also commands the human race to be fruitful and to multiply that is to have children and as a result of the fall here God doesn't rescind that command he doesn't say okay the whole childbearing enterprise is over he doesn't say that that's going to continue people are going to continue to have children but notice the word multiply there in verse 16 I will multiply your pain as you are obeying the creation mandate to multiply and be fruitful. I, God says, am going to multiply your pain in the process of childbirth. So it's well known that bearing a child is a painful thing. So we certainly see that bear out over the course of history. But I think probably this can be applied even broader to that, not just the physical pain of bearing children, but just the difficulty and pain and trouble that comes along with raising children. (laughs) The the pain and difficulty of being awakened in the middle of the night repeatedly by the crying infant. Uh, The pain and difficulty of dealing with rebellious teenagers, uh, even the pain of dealing with a child who precedes the mother and father in death. This is a fallen world now. Raising children will continue, but it's not going to be easy. For parents, it can be really hard to raise children. And the Proverbs kind of speak to this in many ways here. In Proverbs 19, he who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. It says in Proverbs 23, let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Uh, children don 't make it harder than it already is on your children because as a result of this curse it 's going to be a painful thing to raise children of course there 's many joys and um, reward in raising children, but because of the curse, it can be very difficult uh, i 've often thought my father died in in two thousand and two and I know growing up as a teenager i mean I was one of those kids you know i didn 't get in a lot of trouble, but you know I did not like my father 's authority and i I resisted it, and so our confession and assurance is very convicting for me. Um, I didn't think my dad had any business poking into my life and asking who my friends were and telling me what to do, and I made sure that he knew it. And I'm sure that I caused him a, a lot of heartache. And I've really longed for the time when I could just sit down and say, you know, Dad, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you've taught me, the way you raised me, the way you provided for me, the way you were faithful to my mother. And I don't have that opportunity now. And so, children, express gratitude to your parents while you have the opportunity. Raising children can be painful, and that's part of the curse. But we also see here that God is speaking to the woman about trouble that she's going to have in her marriage as well. This is also a part of struggling under the curse. So you look at the second part of verse 16, and God says, to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this is a, kind of an odd cryptic phrase. There's, uh, you know, the meaning of this is not necessarily apparent. Some people think that this might refer to the sexual desire of the wife for the husband, but many commentators say that's probably not the best way to read this. Uh, the key words here are desire, And rule, desire and rule, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Well, if um, we compare this to a verse that comes just a little while afterward, chapter 4, verse 7, this is uh, God speaking to Cain, you'll see the use of the same words, desire and rule. Rule. So what God says is sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. If we look at 4.7, the meaning seems to be a little more clear. If we take that meaning and apply it to 3.16, it might help us understand more what is in view here in chapter 3, verse 16. The idea seems to be this, that just as sin, like a beast, desires To rule over us and to dominate us so is that going to be the case for the woman in the relationship with her husband that her tendency is going to be to dominate to control to resist the authority that God set up in the marriage relationship that's going to be part of living under the curse part of the results of the fall so the wife will want to oppose her husband she uh, will not Gladly embrace her role as helper. We saw that that earlier. That that's the word that God used for the wife. But she would no longer want to do that, but would uh, oppose, resist her husband. And so again, in the Proverbs here, you know, says this: It's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So, the Proverbs are acknowledging this difficulty that it can be the tendency of. Uh, women to nag and try to control their husbands but it goes on here to say that uh, the husband will then rule over you woman and so if we go back to chapter 4 verse 7 you must uh, rule over uh, sin in other words you must you must dominate it really is what that means you must take full control over sin in your life in what The passage seems to be suggesting is that that's going to be the tendency of the husband now, that the husband will no longer cherish his wife, will will no longer seek to, to love her and care for her and serve her and protect her, but it will be his tendency to want to be domineering, to boss her around, to control her, maybe even to be verbally abusive, maybe even to be physically abusive. And of course, very sadly, we've seen that happen in many marriage relationships. And so the scriptures later speak to this too, Colossians 3. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Be gentle with them in how you speak to them. Be kind, be tender. But living in a, a cursed world, marriage enters into this difficult state of affairs. A woman trying to control her husband, and the husband dominating his wife now we should keep perspective here <laughs> this seems like a pretty cynical view of marriage not suggesting this goes on all the time not suggesting that every husband and every wife acts in particularly this way and in fact marriage is a good thing let's not forget that marriage is good creation ordinance that God set up before the fall marriage is to be honored it is to be protected marriage itself is not a curse <laughs> okay Depending on where you are in your marriage, sometimes you might think that it is a curse. But marriage in itself is not a curse. But in a fallen world, it will be hard. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be time you don't, times you don't feel loved very well. There's going to be times when you don't love very well. It's not an excuse to dissolve the marriage, but it's a realistic assessment of what it's like living in a cursed world marriage is hard so God goes on and he has words now for the man it's not just the woman but the man in verses 17 to 19 so verse 17 begins uh, with this statement from God to the man because you have listened to the voice of your wife At the very beginning of verse 17 now man this is not an excuse to ignore your wife That's not the point. What God is saying here to the man is that you listen to your wife when you should have listened to God. You should have listened to me, God is saying. That's that's the problem. It's not merely listening to your wife, but taking her word as more authoritative than God's word. So God says, because you listen to your wife, he goes on now to explain how the man is going to be affected by this curse. So what we're seeing here is the effects of the fall strike at that which tends to be most important or precious to the man and and the woman. So to a woman, typically uh, what happens is that what's most precious to her is her family, her, her marriage, her children. And so that's where the trouble is directed to her, And now we see trouble directed to what is most precious and important, typically, to a man, which is his work. His work now is going to be plagued. And it's very interesting here that the punishment seems to fit the crime, right? Because Adam ate of the fruit. That was his violation, his disobedience to God, eating the fruit. Well, now, you look at the second half of verse 17... Now, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it. So the punishment fits the crime. You disobeyed by eating. So now, what used to be a very common and easy task, that is just taking fruit off the tree and providing food for yourself, that's going to be a hard thing for you now, Adam. For all the rest of your life, in fact, the word "eat" appears five times here in verses 17 to 19. So God goes on in verse 18: thorns and thistles. That's going to bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field, but it's by the sweat of your face that you're going to get your bread. It's going to be hard work. Is going to be plagued with frustration and struggle. Remember, this was God's command to Adam when He put him in the garden, chapter two, verse 15: keep the garden cultivate it, guard it. Adam placed in this beautiful place with all this food, but now what used to be easy and pleasurable is going to be plagued with struggle and frustration. Now remember again, just like marriage is good, marriage itself is not a curse, work is not a curse. Work is good. Work was instituted also before the fall. Work is essential to our humanity. We don't look at work as if In itself, it's a bad thing, Um, but work is hard, right? I mean, this is just easy, common sense, I guess, but we shouldn't be surprised when we find that hours are long at our work, and maybe we feel underpaid and underappreciated. Computers crash all the time, there's technical difficulties layoffs become necessary. Sometimes our work feels pointless and purposeless, we don't know why we're doing what we're doing. We lose our heart for what we're doing, and we begin to look for something else to do, and then we find that job, and that doesn't satisfy us like we thought it would. A songwriter uh, that I know of, uh, a guy named Richard Thompson, wrote this song years ago called Stuck on the Treadmill. Wish I knew a better way to keep myself alive shaking sheets of metal every day from 9 to 5. Others may be living, but me, I just survive. Me, I just survive. And that's the way a lot of us feel in, in our work. You know, I wish there were a better way. I feel like all I'm doing is just surviving here. I'm finding no joy, no reward in what I'm doing. This is part of what it is to live in a cursed world. It's hard to find joy in our work. It's not that we never find joy in our work. But sometimes it's difficult. And, you know, the curse then also affects more than just those jobs we do for our occupation. It kind of spreads out into all of life. And this all of life kind of becomes an exercise in frustration. I had an example of this with uh, our van. We have a 2000 Chrysler Town & Country van. And uh, the power steering was... Going wrong, and so we're trying to make a decision about whether we want to put money into this van to get it fixed because it's 20 years old. Um, you know, we could put money into it here, and then maybe we can get a few more years out, it, out of it. But what if we put a bunch of money into it and then we have another problem right away? Well, which of the two do you think happened? <laughs> we take it to the garage, we spend a thousand dollars getting the power steering fixed and i'm telling you it was the very day we brought the van home that the transmission started going out and so i take the van to a transmission mechanic and he says yeah it's another thousand dollars so we haven't done that yet it's continuing to work thank god but apparently it's on its last legs just reminds me of murphy's law right Have you heard murphy's law if anything can go wrong it will I mean, it just seems sometimes like that's the case, right? Now, those of us who are more kind of glass half-empty people, more pessimistic people might need to be reminded that sometimes things should go wrong and they don't, right? There's plenty of times when we're surprised by the way things go well. That's the common grace of God. That's just his goodness and kindness to us. So that continues in a fallen world. It's not like things go badly all the time. But very frequently, doesn't it just seem like if things can go wrong, they will. And then we have just kind of the ultimate irony here, and that is told us in verse 19 where God says, Adam, you're going to return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Why is that so ironic? Well, remember, God gave to Adam the command to take dominion over creation. Over the earth, he was to rule over the dust and over the ground. And now, instead, the ground gets victory over Adam and swallows him up when he dies. And to dust, he returns. The thing over which he was to rule is going to rule him in the end. Warren Gage says this, The silver tarnishes, the bronze corrodes, the iron rusts, haunting the entire human Enterprise, whispers, this echo from Adam, excuse me, from Eden. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Well, I want you to notice something here. We do see some good news peeking through this text. <clears throat> in verse 7, again, in verse 17, again, cursed is the ground. God is not cursing Adam, thankfully, but he does curse the ground, and that might be a surprise to many of us who think of uh, the curse as something that is strictly spiritual, as if God is bringing his condemnation only on the souls of people, as if there's only a spiritual application here. What this text is saying is that it's not just uh, human beings, men and women, who are dealing with the curse, but it's the entire creation, it's the entire cosmos, it's the earth itself, the earth suffers as a result of the sin of adam and eve and here's what romans 18 excuse me romans 8 says paul says this the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility or to frustration not willingly but because of him who subjected it that him could be adam could be god but I think this passage is referring to the passages that we're reading right now in, Genesis, in uh, Genesis 3. In hope that the creation itself one day will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And so when we contemplate the work of Jesus on the cross, friends, it's a phenomenal thing to consider that Jesus is not just the Savior of our souls, he's the Savior of the whole universe. He is a cosmic Savior, he is delivering not just us from the condemnation that we deserve but he is delivering the earth as well. Colossians 1 talks about the work of Jesus on the cross that reconciles to himself all things whether in heaven or on earth it says. Second Peter 3 says we're awaiting new heavens and a new earth. That's our final destination, a new earth and in fact in a few weeks As we get into the Advent season, we're going to be singing joy to the world. And we'll sing this. No more will sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Again, a reference to Genesis 3. But he'll come and make the blessings flow as far as the curse was found. The curse extends to the earth. And when Jesus comes again, he is going to free the earth from its corruption. And that is our eternal home, friends. The new heaven's and a new earth. But we don't have any longing for the redemption of the earth without knowledge that the earth was once cursed. And that's what we're being told here in Genesis 3. So God speaks to the woman. God speaks to the man. And then lastly, we see that God has words for the serpent. God has words for the serpent. We're going to spend a few moments here looking at verse 15. Now it's very common for people to think that um, in the Old Testament we have God's wrath and anger and then we don't really get any gospel until the new testament very common belief gospel starts in the new testament that's wrong it's a mistaken belief the gospel actually starts right here in chapter 3 verse 15 in fact uh, it's called if you want to impress your friends sometime by dropping a great big theological word here's a suggestion for you the proto evangelium it's a great word. I love to say this word. The proto-evangelium, it means the first gospel. Chapter 3, verse 15, is called the Proto-Evangelium. Now it's not quite as clear as John 3.16, because this promise of the gospel is going to unfold and become clearer over the course of progressive revelation but we do see the gospel in seed form here in chapter 3 verse 15. We see it in two ways. First of all we see that God declares war. This is the first thing that God does here in setting up this promise of the gospel. He declares war. Verse 15 I will put enmity he says, between you and the woman. That word enmity actually in the Hebrew is at the very beginning of the sentence. The point is that that is to give emphasis to this idea of enmity that is going to be present throughout all of human history going forward. That is conflict, that is hostility, there's warfare that is going to be occurring. Now, between whom, we might say? Well, He says it very clearly between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. Between the serpent and the woman, there's going to be this this conflict, this enmity. But he also says it's between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, Some translations say seed, between your seed and her seed. So you've got the woman and the serpent. And what God is saying is there's going to be conflict, hostility, Going forward throughout all human history between the offspring, between the descendants of the woman on the one hand and the serpent on the other, hostility, warfare. Now, of course, we're not talking here in terms of Satan about biological descendants. I mean, (laughs) Satan doesn't get married and have children. Physically speaking, what is in mind here are the spiritual descendants of Satan So we see an example of that in John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, why do you not understand what I say, Pharisees? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So here are these Pharisees. They're not believers in Jesus. They've rejected Jesus. And what Jesus says is, your dad is the devil, You are one of the descendants of the serpent. Hailing back to what God is saying here in chapter 3, verse 15. Friends, what this tells us is that when it comes to you and Jesus and your perspective on Jesus, there's no middle ground here. There's no neutrality. There's no gray area. There's no fence riding here. There are two groups in humanity, the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the serpent, and you fall into either one of them. Not in between. That's not an option. And the implicit question here that's being asked is which one are you? Do you belong to the descendant of Eve, Jesus Christ, or do you belong to your father, the devil? That's the question that... This passage wants us to reflect upon, but this also tells us, friends, that being a Christian is not easy, and in fact, being a Christian means you're living in the context of perpetual conflict and difficulty and hostility. You're not living on neutral ground, you're living on a battlefield, a spiritual battlefield and. This is why Galatians 5.17 makes sense. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. They're at enmity with each other. They're constantly fighting each other. And so if you find yourself in your Christian life just in struggle, you just feel like it's hard. Your heart wants to do one thing, and you know that it's wrong, and your spirit wants to do another, and you feel like in your soul there's a battle going on. There's nothing wrong with you if that's your experience. That's what it is to live under a cursed world. That's what it is to live in a world where there is enmity between the descendants of the woman and the descendants of Satan. But then God goes on, and he not only declares war, <coughs> but he declares a victory. God declares a victory. So this offspring that is being talked about here in verse 15, it certainly can mean descendants in the plural but you'll see that it goes on to speak in the singular sense at the end of verse 15 and this is the promise that's made he that is referring to the woman's offspring he an individual there's one coming who will bruise your head remember God's speaking to the serpent here this descendant is going to bruise your head serpent and you shall bruise his heel. This descendant who is coming from the woman is going to deal a decisive mortal blow to the serpent. But in the process, this descendant is going to have his heel bruised. Now, this isn't really so hard to understand if you just think about what it would be like to step on the head of a snake. If you wanted to kill a snake, you'd step on it and you'd probably get your heel down there and probably grind your heel onto his head to kill that snake but what would probably happen in the process is that snake is going to bite you in the heel and that's the picture that's given the metaphor here that's given to us for this one who is coming this Messiah who is coming this, this Savior this one person a descendant and he is going to do this work what God is saying is Satan you're not going to win Victory is promised. A Messiah is going to come who's going to defeat you, who's going to crush your head, but he is also a Messiah who is going to do it through suffering. It's going to require suffering on the part of this descendant. And we get a clearer picture of who this is in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook partook of the same things, became a man that through death, Through his own suffering, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This descendant is Jesus, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. And living on this side of the cross, we read the New Testament, and we know what this cryptic promise is referring to, the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And all the rest of history, all the rest of the Bible, this this verse is so essentially important because all the rest of the Bible is just an unfolding and an explaining of Genesis 3.15. It's just showing how this is working out over history. Think about it. Think of all the conflict that you see throughout the scriptures. You get to Genesis chapter four and immediately what happens? You've got Cain trying to kill Abel. That's, That's the enmity. You go later on, you've got Saul trying to kill David. You've got the prophets constantly being killed by evil forces within Israel. You've got Haman trying to kill the Jews in the book of Esther. And we get to the New Testament, and we see King Herod wanting to kill all the young Hebrew children in Jerusalem. <clears throat> as a way of trying to kill <coughs> and rub out and eliminate this coming descendant. Excuse me. So, the gospel is here for us in the Old Testament. The gospel begins in Genesis 3. And so, I think what we can do is revise our motto. Some of you might have adopted this motto, life is hard and then you die. Well, let's think about that a little differently. Life is hard. Yes, that's true. Life is hard because we live in a world that is cursed but friends a savior has been offered to you a savior a messiah one who has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us it tells us in galatians 3 you can repent and turn from your sins you can believe in this savior you can receive him as your savior and king even while life is hard you can believe upon his name then you die yeah that's true. One day you will die, yes, but if Jesus is your Savior, you have this assurance that when you die, you will be ushered immediately into his presence. You will go to glory. You will go to a place that God has prepared for you, a place called heaven, where all of your sins will be forgotten, washed away, and all the effects of evil will be purged from you. And then one day, you and him and all of God's people are going to come again. He's going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And the curse will be reversed completely reversed. And the suffering that we experience in this life will not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us at that time. So, the descendant came in the person of Jesus as God promised. And he will come again. And until then, let us love him, trust him, and serve him until that day. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that although sometimes your word gives us hard things, it tells us the truth about who we are and the world in which we live. Thank you for that. But We thank you also, Lord, that in your grace, you have promised to fix the problem. Thank you for sending Jesus. Help us to love and serve him well. In his name we pray. Amen.